0: It's interesting because uh, we're going to be talking about postmodernism and apologetics for postmodernism. And uh, I was asked to teach on this subject by a seminary in Buenos Aires. And I just got back a week ago from teaching this class there. So my challenge uh, for the next two weeks was to try to distill that down into the more pertinent stuff and uh, not give you the whole shebang and, you know, in the fire hose format, you know. So, uh, but interestingly though, Matt made it sound like this was my specialty, far from it. I'd never taught a class on apologetics before. And uh, although uh, my degrees from Westminster Theological Seminary, and if anybody knows anything about Westminster, their forte is apologetics and particularly presuppositional apologetics. And now, if that's Greek to you, (laughs) uh, at the end of this class today, I hope you'll understand the difference. Okay? And uh, not that we're going to do a, a lecture on the philosophy of apologetics, but I want to talk about that a little bit, because today's topic is going to be a tad bit more philosophical than practical. Wake me up, Martha, when this is over. I'll get a good nap this morning. You know, if you didn't get to sleep in time last night, you'll get a chance to catch up. No, no, hopefully we'll make it at least somewhat interesting. And I think you'll uh, walk out of this class, at least that's my hope and prayer, with a better understanding of how to reach our culture today. Now, as I'm looking around this room... Uh, no offense, but I see a lot of people that are old like me. Okay? Sorry, sorry. I wasn't looking at you, I was looking at Dick. I've <laughs> got a couple of good friends here that work with me on salt leadership, and uh, so they might catch a few barbs here and there. But uh, for those of us who live the vast majority of our lives in the 20th century, we're confused about what's going on in the world today, right? Uh, if you're honest with yourself, you're like, I don't understand this. Why are all our values eroding? Why do things seem so different than 50 years ago, 40 years ago? Okay. Well, the answer is, to a great degree, postmodernism. We're in the midst of a massive cultural shift within all of Western culture. And this also works quite well in South America. Uh, I was talking about a lot of these things and saying, does this resonate from what you guys are seeing? And my students are saying, oh, yeah, 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 we hear that all the time. We hear this all the time. So I don't think this is something that is just limited to U.S. culture, but it also transcends that. Into South American culture, Latin American culture, perhaps to a lesser degree, certainly all of Western culture and Europe and areas like that. Okay, so you're like, oh, what is this thing? You know, okay, well, I'm just trying to stimulate a little saliva here for the for the meal that's coming. All right, but we begin. Let's let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we ask that Your Spirit will guide our discussion, our thinking today as we seek to understand the world in which we live in, and more importantly, that we seek to formulate a defense for our faith in light of these changes within our culture, changes in the idea of what is true and what is evidence and so forth. And Father, give us wisdom, help us to take what we've learned, not only from today, but from this whole series in this last month or so and apply it to our lives, help us to be able to speak to our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, and tell them more accurately about Christ and and what it means to come to Him. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so let's get started here. I want to give you some introductory ideas. I've already kind of painted a little bit of picture, but today we do live in a confusing world. Um, I'm a historian by profession, church historian. That's what I did a lot of years. Uh, I was here, as Matt said, last year talking about the Reformation. And uh, being a student of the Reformation meant you had to be a student of the Middle Ages because you had to understand the world in which the Reformation grew out of. So, this world that we all come from in the West, now again, America is a hard thing to define because you might be from an Asian background and say, well, I don't have any roots in Europe. All right? But the broader culture of the United States really comes out of a Western European uh, context for the most part. And this world that Christendom, you ever hear that expression, Christendom, you know, sort of the, the Christian culture, the Christian society, it was a one of truth and that truth had what is known as a metanarrative. Anybody ever heard of that expression? meta-narrative? Okay, one person. All right. So you are going to learn something today. A metanarrative is a grand overall scheme of truth, reality. Uh, some might even use the word uh, worldview. But a metanarrative is some sort of overall guiding principle to something. And if we talk about... Uh, the meaning of existence and life and its purpose here, the Christian world sees that all related to God. We believe in God. We believe then that God gives us that big meta narrative, gives us a purpose for living, gives us a reason for living, gives us a way of evaluating truth, a meta narrative. In other words, a grand narrative, a grand worldview that determines how you react to the world you live in. So this was a world that was dominated by Christianity the church, but in 500 years, a lot changed. Now, last summer, for those of you who are here, we had a long series of discussions on the Reformation. Okay, What set the stage for the Reformation was what's known as the Renaissance. We've all heard of the Renaissance. You can think of Da Vinci and... Michelangelo in the art world and, but there was a revolution in literature and so many other things and that gave rise to uh, a return to a new emphasis on the centrality of the individual but again the world changed and now it evolved into what we sometimes call modernism and I'll have a little bit more to say about that Um, before too much longer, okay? And then we're going to try to go from modernism to postmodernism, okay? So, in any event, that's where we are. So, we talk about the development of postmodernism. We first want to talk about premodernism and the rise of rationalism. Now, in my class I taught last week, I took them through kind of a whole survey of what happened post-Renaissance, post-Reformation in Western thinking. We could talk about the uh, the challenge of astronomers such as Galileo and Copernicus who revolutionized the way we understood our, the cosmos, right? Uh, we don't have time to go into all of that. We could talk about the groundbreaking philosophical changes of Rene Descartes, Immanuel Kant, and others who became sort of the spokesman for what we would call the Enlightenment. And the reason that this kind of took hold is several reasons that developed out of post-Reformation Europe. There was an increasing middle class. There was a great deal of disillusionment because of the conflict between Catholics and Protestants. There were several wars, one of which... Lasted for 30 years throughout Central Europe. And it led to a lot of disillusionment, particularly with Christianity and the dogmas of the different religious groups. Um, Christian groups tended to become very confessional. Now, you've probably seen this tendency in some groups, right? Some groups are like, well, we only sprinkle twice. And backwards to forwards when we baptize, okay? And another group's like, well, we sprinkle three times, you know, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know, and so forth. So um, you know that Christians can get very guarded about their own particular brand of Christianity. So there was a lot of upset about that. And most of all, it was this new science and philosophy that, fostered more of a trust in human reason than in the scriptures. All right. So again, we're talking about the Enlightenment. So um, the Enlightenment can be defined then as a movement towards the rule of reason. So again, we're talking about what was taking place in the 1700s, the early 1800s, in Western culture, what we had was all of this rise of modern science, modern philosophy, and what they were saying was, now we want to put our trust in human reason, but it kind of developed in three stages. First stage was, reason is seen to be able to defend the truths of Christianity. All right. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with this, because Christianity is a rational religion. And I don't mean it's just rationalism, but every time the Bible asks us to believe something, it gives us evidence. You know, Jesus said to Thomas, you know, Thomas doubted him. And Jesus said, here, put your hand in my side. You know, here's the evidence that I really have risen from the dead. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a phantom. Okay? But what then developed... Well, let's see, do I have a... Uh, No, I don't have one. Okay. I was going to think if I had a... Wait. Oh, yeah. They never work on TV screens. Sorry. Anyway, um, notice that Christian truth ought to be shown to be consistent with reason. But then what developed out of that, because Christianity is in harmony with reason, then Christianity merely reiterates what we can know through reason. Therefore... It's redundant. So you see how reason is no longer in support of the Scriptures, but rather becoming more important than the Scriptures. And the final stage of the Enlightenment was reason now becomes the way that we evaluate Christian revelation or any religion at all. So now human reason is seen as sort of the ultimate source of reality in life, so this leads to what we call modernity or the modern era, a world in which reason is seen as the only way to find and determine all truth. all right now, does this resonate with you? Is this not i 'm sorry, is this reasonable? Now, I know this is you're kind of like, I just got up and I've only had one cup of coffee. You know, you're talking about all this stuff. It's blo- exploding my mind. But um, the world we live in, you know, we see these constant battles, especially those of us who lived uh, the majority of our life in the 20th century, between science and religion, you know. Uh, the Bible and what the, the rational people are telling us is the truth and all of that, right? Right? We've we've heard those battles, we've been a part of them, and so forth. And that is a, a big part of what apologetics is all about. So uh, next week I'll bring in some books for you that I'm going to recommend if you want to do some further study and so forth. But one of those books is by a, name, a guy by the name of Douglas Gruthius. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And um, he kind of summarizes... Uh, what the goal of this period was. The term modernism is often identified with this overall project. The modernist vision presupposed the power of rationality to discover objective truth. In other words, in our human reason gives us all that we need to be able to find the truth. Okay? They desired a rational scientific worldview over the perceived irrationality and acrimony stemming from religion, the possibility of progress through humanity's emancipation from received dogma and superstition. So a pretty negative viewpoint towards religion, and particularly because it grew out of Christianity towards Christian dogma and so forth. But it's interesting to note in this that modernism never really questioned the long-standing Christian viewpoint of truth. What it does rather is questions the means at where you get that truth. See, Christian philosophers, Christians for millennia have said, truth, first of all, finds its source in God and through his revelation, and then we use our human reason to sort of discover that. So truth begins in God. Here, modern man is saying truth begins in our reason and what we can discover from our reason. We'll have more to say about that later on as we talk more specifically about how to counteract these ideas. Well, this then leads us to postmodernism. And postmodernism is... The transition from the modern era to the postmodern era. And you can't say, well, let's see. It started on August 31st, 1988. No. It's a very complex thing, and it's going on as we speak. So when you look at our culture, you'll see many people who are clearly moderns. You'll find some people that are pre modern. Uh, But you'll see a a growing movement of these postmodern ideas as I begin to talk about them and what the characteristics are. I hope they'll resonate with you because I know that I've heard them over and over again. So modernism is still very popular in many circles, but what we see is increasing pluralism, secularism, and the challenging of any kind of ideas of truth in an absolute sense. And so I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. But I want to talk about three so-called prophets from this most postmodern era. These are three scholars that exerted an, an enormous amount of influence over Western thinking at this point in time. The first one is Michel Foucault. Um, you can see he's a 20th century man. He died in 1984. Um, he is best known for his critique. Of the limits of knowledge, and its relationship to power. Okay, now say, like knowledge. You know, I mean, you hear that sometimes. Knowledge is power. You know, but he means it in a different way than just empowering an individual. Okay. So uh, now, again, another book that I recommend is Stanley Greens' book on primer on postmodernism. But again, I'll bring that in next week and show it to everybody. Um, he says that Western society for three centuries made a number of fundamental errors. Now, this is what Foucault is saying, okay? We're not stressing this, okay? He says, one, that the objective body of knowledge exists and is waiting to be discovered. In other words, that there's a truth out there that we can go and discover with our human reason. So he's attacking this modern ideal of our rationality being able to discover some sort of absolute truth. Two, that they actually possess such knowledge and that it is neutral or value-free. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, what he's simply saying is that, is that there's no such thing as uninterpreted truth and value-free truth. Everybody chooses what they want to believe for their own agenda. Chooses their own truth in that sense. And then three, that the pursuit of knowledge benefits all mankind rather than just a specific class. And this sort of was the essence of what he was saying. He was saying that um, those who gain knowledge and create knowledge systems do so to exert power over others. So it's, it's ultimately political. Truth is political to him, you see. And it's a way of creating a reality that then supports the power that you want for your group, your idea, and that sort of thing. Okay? Interesting. All right? So, quite a bit different than the modern view of some sort of absolute truth that's out there that we can find in our human reason. It's a very pessimistic viewpoint here. The second... uh, By the way, both these guys are French... Um, (laughs) that explains it right there (laughs) Jacques Derrida I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly my French pronunciation is a little rugged but uh, Derrida another French philosopher um, became famous for deconstruction of language in literary texts So that's why I kind of summarized him as deconstructionism okay he taught the origin of language lies within the writing itself, not in some sort of external truth or object beyond itself. So, the, again, you know, there is no meta-narrative. There's nothing above and beyond. There's only the text itself. So, uh, another good quotation by Grand that might help us somewhat is, we must... Um, Abandon. Ah, okay, I'm sorry. Forgive me for that. I was looking at the wrong quote. We must abandon the older understanding of reading as an attempt to gain entrance into the text in order to understand its meaning. Okay, now what he's saying is the old way we used to do this is we used to read a text and say, okay, what is the author, the thing beyond the text, trying to say to me? through this text. He says, no, we got to get rid of that idea. Instead, we embrace the idea that reading is a violent act of mastery over the text. So you're like, what? <laughs> I know. See, you're moderns. <laughs> and you're looking at that and you're scratching your head. But I might, I might give you an example here today. Uh, we've had a lot of discussion within our culture about the Constitution, right? You know, moderns are like, what did the founding fathers intend when they wrote the U.S. Constitution? And so we, we try to, we go back, we try to show, you know, what, their, what the context was, what their meaning were behind the words that we hold to be self-evident, <laughs> right? But, in, but postmoderns are going to say, that doesn't matter. What they intended doesn 't matter what matters now is how we read it, so the reading of that text becomes entirely subjective. Well you could see the incredibly deconstructing elements of this if we applied it to Bible reading. Most of you probably have been trained or listened to pastors who believed that when we, when we talk about what the Bible means we, we talk about what both the human author and God is speaking to us through that text. And we do it through uh, looking at the grammar and, and all of those sorts of things in the historical context and stuff like that. All right, so this is another uh, key prophet in postmodernism. All right, now, um, the third prophet, and he's the most recently passed away of them. And, and this guy was incredibly popular. I was reading about him, and uh, he uh, gave a series of lectures at universities, and they were overwhelmingly attended. I mean, the people were coming out of the woodwork to hear him speak, and you'll, I think you'll recognize this once we get into him. So um, Rorty is perhaps known for his pragmatic approach, um, has sort of a positivistic, almost utopian vision of the way society's going. So, whereas the previous two guys were largely uh, critical and negative in their thinking, Rorty is very much uh, interested in uh, sort of an idealistic future. Um, He also is an anti-foundationalist. Now, um, foundationalist denies that you can set forth first principles or canons of rationality that provide a foundation for discovery of truth and knowledge. So, in other words, he very much agrees with these other guys that there is no such thing as absolute truth. There's no foundation that we can build an understanding of truth on. Okay, well, then why is he so positive about the future? Well, it's because of this next statement He says, the only foundation we'll ever be able to find are those of the community in which we participate. So it's groupthink. The only foundation we'll ever be able to assemble is the give and take of the conversation among competing interpretations. The proper goal of philosophy is not to uncover objective truth, but to maintain the discussion amongst these differing interpretations. That's starting to ring a bell in modern society. We're not talking about trying to find truth. We're trying to hear everybody's voice and somehow come to a consensus. So he does not advocate a search for truth to to guide human society, but rather a spirit of compromise between competing voices and a trial and error approach to charting those goals and morals of society. Now, if I might just share one story um, to illustrate the change in morals, okay, and we all know this and we all see it, but uh, years ago when I was a teenager, about 10 years ago, (laughs) um, I had a buddy of mine, I lived in Southern California, and his aunt had a beach house at Malibu, it was cool, yeah. We used to go down there occasionally. And uh, anyway, we had to climb down this big, huge, long stairway to get down because there were cliffs and stuff like that. We had to get down to the beach. And we went down to the beach one day, and we were walking along the beach. And it was a private beach, so it wasn't a public beach. But there were some guys walking along, and they were a group of homosexuals. And they were engaging in public activity. Let's put it that way. My friend, who wasn't a Christian... Uh, and this is probably in the 70s, okay, he was absolutely furious. He just couldn't believe that someone was doing this sort of thing, and he started yelling and screaming at him and throwing rocks at him and telling him to get off the beach and blah, 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 you know. So, and I was kind of like, I was a believer at the time, and, you know, I wasn't excited about what was going on, but I was trying to have a sense of compassion for these people. But anyway... So, um, but that was the cultural approach at that point in time. You know, the psychologists used to call it a dysfunctional behavior. used to be in the DSM-3 manuals, you know, how to treat people who have this thing. And boy, it's a lot different now, right? What has changed? There's been an ongoing discussion and a change of our morals, not because of any kind of... uh, Necessarily absolute truth, though there's been some attempts to try to prove homosexual ge- genetic orientation and that sort of thing. But it's largely been an issue of rights and a discussion that's gone on. So, yes, we've seen a lot of this kind of thing going on. So, Rorty does not advocate a search for truth, but this spirit of compromise. And so, we're going to call him pragmatist. You know, we're not looking for the truth, we're looking for a solution within our culture that will work. And so we listen to all the different voices and try to come to a consensus for moral issues, for issues of how we raise our children or how we conduct, how we make our laws and all sorts of things like this. So this is very, very popular and becoming more popular. And what often goes along with this is a radical secularism and a radical Um, uh, well let's just use I'm having a brain dump right now it's early in the morning I'm looking for the other term I'm thinking of but we'll just stick with a radical secularism here in other words that the state cannot um, uh, adopt any one of these voices okay but as we'll see later on when the state does that it actually adopts one of those voices okay and that The secularism itself is really a religion, because it's a set of worldviews, it's a set of beliefs that they say transcends all other worldviews and all other beliefs. But we'll get into that later. And that's primarily what I'm going to do on the second week of this class, is I'm going to give examples of arguments against this stuff. Today I'm trying to build a little bit more of the background. Next week we'll we'll construct some uh, potential arguments against this and... uh, recommend some resources for you and stuff like that. Okay, so <clears throat> what are some of the key ideas of postmodernism? Again, first of all, a rejection of the modern and the pre-modern search for truth. This is one of the critical ideas, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time later on uh, in the class today, is we're going to talk about truth, the biblical view for truth, what the Bible has to say about it, and so forth, because it's critical here. All right? So instead, postmodernism seeks truths that are nothing more than viewpoints, opinions, or power structures. Okay. And if anybody's been to a university in the last few decades, you'll have heard some teacher, a secular university anyway, hopefully not a Christian university, say that truth is all relative. This is postmodernism screaming at you. Because there's no transcendent truth, there's no meta narrative. In other words, no overall guidance or grand design to the universe and our existence. Okay? There isn't anything. You say, boy, that's pretty pessimistic. Yeah, you got it. It's terribly pessimistic. So meaning for individuals has to be determined by themselves. Oh, Don't you just love Walt Disney theology? Now, I'm a big Disney fan, but not of everything. And one of the key statements you'll see in a lot of Disney films, and especially children's films, is at some point in time the character or the main character of the story is going through some sort of crisis, and what do they have to do? Well, follow your heart. Remember that one? Okay, in other words, you've got to find your own meaning. Okay. You, you know there 's no <clears throat> there's no you know what should a Christian do if the christian's in a crisis the christian doesn 't know where to go what should we do pray for god 's guidance seek study the Word for God to give you enlightenment. see so we and the reason is because we believe in the meta narrative of God and the overall purpose for humanity 's existence, and we also believe that we have a personal meta narrative we have, we have a personal uh, involvement in God's plan and and God's story if you will say so that's a huge difference so it, it, it's interesting that one of the best selling books of the last century is you know Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life he's essentially arguing for a Christian worldview a Christian metanarrative saying that if you follow Christ your life will have purpose you'll have a reason for existence You'll have something that's above and beyond you to be able to order your life against. See? Yeah? Well, I, I have a question. Um, because it seems to me one of the problems we have in society today is you can't even have reasonable discourse. Right. So there's so much polarization that you have. And you have Fox News and MSNBCs like and Well, that's a good point. A very good point. I don't have a clue. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, let's go back to uh Derrida for a second. Because I see this so much in our culture today. Um, and you mentioned the the you know the blue versus the red, the left versus the right, Fox versus CNN, you know. <laughs> it's almost like who do you go to to get your news, you know? Um and and it seems like each group is not focused on trying to find truth, but rather to continue their hold on power. You know, and, and of course, this is why the, the, pre, the elections are so critical, because this is how you gain power, and this is why the left is so upset, because Trump's in office, and, blah, blah, and vice versa. When Obama was in office, the right was all upset, you know, and, and this sort of thing. Okay. So this is definitely going on and I think you're very perceptive in seeing that and what I'm trying to kind of give everybody is why that's developed that way. And you're right, there isn't an intelligent discourse over these issues. You know, it's all about um, accepting a lot of positions for things that are sometimes fundamentally illogical. Case in point, you know, you have... Uh, it's quite common to have somebody on the left who's passionate about animal rights, um, you know, and human rights and things like this, and yet they're also passionate about abortion and abortion rights. So, uh, you know, that seems incompatible if you're concerned about animals' rights and not killing animals, yet you can kill babies, you know? So (laughs) there's... A lot of times, serious inconsistencies. Uh, Christians aren't immune from that either. You know, we say we believe in in human rights and all of this stuff, and yet oftentimes we don't believe in helping the poor and the the, uh, oppressed in society and things like that. So we don't often uh, follow through, and we sort of adopt these positions uh, of these different camps. Um, I hope to answer some of that. It will come in what I call presuppositional apologetics and it will come in attacking the inconsistent logic of those preconceived notions that people are holding on to. Okay? So what most of the discourse ends up being out there in the world today is it ends up being attacks on what I would call symptoms of the problem rather than the problem itself. So, just I like this old illustration, but, you know, if a guy's lying down on the ground and he's been hit by a car and he's got a compound fracture and the bone's sticking up out of his arm and you walk up to him and say, what can I do to help you? And he says, my arm hurts. And he says, well, let me give you an aspirin. You know, let me bandage it up and, and, uh, and give you some medication and stuff and take you home and put you to bed and stuff like that. Well, that's fine, but you're not addressing the root cause of his pain. You're only addressing the symptoms of the pain. The the problem is is that he's got a broken arm and it needs to be set. Probably needs surgery. You know, so um, I, I think sometimes we engage in this these in, these very intense battles over symptoms rather than attacking straight at the fundamental problems. But I'll have more to say about that a little later on. I still want to build some groundwork here. Final characteristic is society must determine morals and standards based upon ideas that the community agrees on. Oh, this is nice, but (laughs) you have a radically different community. You might have Muslims, Jews, Christians, atheists, agnostics, uh, LGBTQ. Anyway, the whole homosexual thing, you know. And uh, all kinds of different groups with their agendas. And how are you going to get an agreement on that? Because you have no foundation. You have no common sense of where you stand. So, since there's no transcendent source, it's sort of a pragmatic approach. You try to kind of come to some sort of a consensus. Well, what we're finding out in our culture is that that's very difficult to do. Okay. Now um, we have about uh, ten minutes. What time do we drop dead in here? At ten o'clock, we're supposed to be done at ten. Never. We're always alive in here. Okay. So we have about fifteen minutes. And I think that's good enough time to talk about the biblical view of truth here. Now again, this is a potentially big topic. A lot more we could be said about it. So it's just a survey here. Um, when we talk about the Old Testament, the main Hebrew word for truth is emeth. Um, and the classic definition for that from Brown, Driver, Briggs, that's what BDB is, that's the classic Hebrew lexicon, is truth, firmness, faithfulness, trustworthiness, consistency, duration, and faithfulness. Faithfulness twice there, sorry. Um, Now, uh, again, this isn't a complete lexical study, but some of the key verses that we see in the Old Testament, uh, this, of course, if you recall, is when Moses asked God to reveal himself to him, put him in the cleft of the rock, and passed by in front of him, in Exodus 34. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So, I think this is probably one of the most important verses in all the Bible because God is truth. It's an essential part of who He is. All right? Just as much as being a loving kind, compassionate God and gracious God, He's also a God of truth. All right? So, again, this is one reason why we believe there is an absolute truth and that truth is in God. And the reason we can see truth, the reason we can discover truth, is that God is a rational being. We've been made in His image. We are rational beings. And so, therefore, we can discover truth. Now, I have more to say about this later on. I keep... I sound like I'm... A commercial here, you know, like, come back, and I'll get, you'll get more next time, but uh, um, I was reading one of the best books I've read in a long time, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I right, said, so, um, now we all come to this at, at that perception, because, right. because God said it, right. Exactly. Because this doesn't hold water to that. No right. Yeah, there's no foundation to stand upon. Right. Right. Well, again, these are the excellent. Back yeah. You know, what what remember I said at the beginning, I said that Christians are really pre modernists. In other words, we still hold to this view that that the overall meta narrative of the world is god he created us he revealed truth to us and so forth so and and honestly there's not a big difference between a conservative jew a muslim and a christian in this regard either they would all believe that god has created the world and the universe and that there is a structure to that. So we're still talking about the majority of people who live on this earth. It's just that the power, the halls of power are now controlled within our culture by uh, people like Rarty. You know? Is there a difference in the definition of truth that we're talking about versus if you drop somebody out of a window, they're going to hit the ground? Yeah. Um, and I was just getting ready to mention, there's a wonderful book that I just finished reading couple weeks ago, um, by my old professor at Westminster, Vern Poitras, and it's called Redeeming Science. And I'm going to share a little bit out of that book next week from you. But essentially, he's arguing along those lines that we can't do science apart from God. See, and, and this is a part of the fundamental disconnect. Uh, We say we don't believe in absolute truth, but we don't have any problem climbing on an airplane and flying, like I did last Sunday, from Buenos Aires to Dallas, Texas. You know? Oh, yeah, you know. Well, that's based upon truth. Based upon principles of mathematics and aerodynamics and, you know, weight, thrust, velocity, all that kind of stuff, right? Right? Those are all, that's all scientific truth that you just placed your life and your trust in. Now I'm jumping ahead a little bit. This is a part of a presuppositional argument that attacks the foundations for a whole system of beliefs and so forth. Yes? I'm not, but moderns would. Moderns would say, we can use our human reason to discover truth. Remember, modernists believe in reason, believe that reason can lead them to truth. So, you know, the scientists and and all of these people, you know, they believe that through the use of rationalism and the scientific method and so forth, they can discover the origins of the universe, they can discover uh, the history of the human race, they can discover, you know, all kinds of mathematical truth and so forth. Oh, I know, I know that's what you're saying. But um, this is where they run into uh, a problem. Now, I skipped over a lot of this stuff, but when I would teach this in greater detail, I would talk about deism. And I would talk about enlightenment religion. Now, that has a big impact on the history of the United States because uh, Jefferson was a deist, and there were several other of the framers of our... Government that were influenced one degree or another by deism, and deism was a was a religion of rationality, and they rejected the miraculous in the Bible and turned Christianity basically into moralism. but what they didn 't realize is that they were rejecting the supernatural nature of the Word of God thereby, thereby rejecting all of the Word of God and putting in its place a tradition of morals that had no foundation. See, So if we reject the scriptures as being revelatory from God, we, can't, we have nothing to stand on when we make uh, moral arguments. Why is it wrong uh, to have sex with another of your same gender? You, know, you can't say that anymore because you've already thrown out the supernatural nature of the revelation, and so now we hear the postmodernists speaking. You know, now it's just a matter of what works for society. You know, not any kind of transcendent moral principle. So it's, those are great questions. Yeah. Um okay. <laughs> no, these are these are great questions, you know, and, and I appreciate it. I'm just Yeah, yeah, okay Postscript. What yeah. I'm do what I'm doing as you're talking is extracting from each of these guys something useful. For example, the Derrida thing about wasn't Derrida talks about violence. Well, the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence and the violence takes away. Right. With that and I don't see in my life. Okay. So there you There you go. Well, you're, I mean, this is your battleground right there, being an English prof, uh, because this is all the cutting edge stuff and all the, the high end literature and analysts and all that sort of stuff. And it's, yeah, it's really out there. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm glad you qualified that. But anyway. <laughs> Whoo, where are the aliens, you know, okay, all right, you know. Uh includes uh the first middle and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's interesting to couple that with Jesus who said, I am the way the truth and the point. Yeah, interesting, I never thought about that. Interesting thought. Yeah. All right, so um, we've gotten through one of about 20 verses I wanted to look at, but <laughs> but these are really great questions, and I'm glad because my fear coming in here today was that this was going to put you all to sleep and zoom right over your heads, and, 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 but I'm, I'm sensing that you're like me, because when you start talking about this, it resonates at all kinds of different levels and things you see. It's true, it's true, yeah, you know. Okay, Psalm 31.5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. That's pretty self-explanatory. Psalm 51, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. This is our response, because God is true, He wants truth from us. This is in a context of facing the truth about who you are and what you've done. Right, Psalm 51 is a psalm of confession. So, you know, we, we all have a way of talking ourselves out of what we've done, right? Or we call it self-rationalization. Uh, let's see, moving on, some other verses, Isaiah 59, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street. Sounds like today, doesn't it? and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. So the, the, the good are suffering when truth stumbles in the streets. And notice, notice how truth and justice are put together here. This is an interesting combination here as well. Uh, Zechariah 8, These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another and with true truth and judgment for peace in your gates. So again, our response needs to be because God is a God of truth to speak the truth. And uh, let's move on to the New Testament. Um, anybody named Alina or Aletheia, or in the group here, it's the Greek word for truth. You'll sometimes see that name for ladies. Um, again, uh, B-A-D-G is the primary Greek lexicon Uh, The quality of being in accord with what is true, truthfulness, dependability, uprightness in thought and deed. Truth's a hard word to define because you want to say it's true. (gasps) Right? You know, truth means truth. (laughs) Well, that's not too helpful, but um, it's one of those fundamental thought concepts in all of human thinking, right? Uh, Truth versus false. So every day... We, we deal with this, and yet this is precisely what's under attack. Some key New Testament verses, many and most of these out of the Gospel of John. John loved to talk about truth, so we'll give us several key examples, and many of them will resonate with you. But first of all, uh, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. So you know, this is sort of a roundabout way to argue for Christ's divinity. God is truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is God. John uh, four. This is one of my favorite passages. Uh, it's talking about our worship should be in both spirit and truth. Right. So there's a uh, you might think of that as authentic, as opposed to inauthentic, something that comes from the heart, as opposed to some sort of mechanical outward behavior. Um, in John 8, Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of me, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Okay. So the truth brings freedom in that sense. Uh, John 14 and 6, everybody knows this one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father above my me. So again, Jesus is the truth. He's just not true. He is the truth, just like he is the way, and he is the life. So it's a very part of his being, is truth. Again, a divinity argument. And uh, a couple more, John sixteen thirteen, The spirit of truth when he comes, see. So you have the Father is truth, Jesus is truth, and you have the spirit of truth, you've got the trinity. Father Son and Holy Spirit are all truth and he'll guide you into the truth okay. and he'll disclose what the truth is going to be to you. Jesus speaking to his disciples here John seventeen seventeen sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth okay. Again, because it's God's word that's why it's true. Uh, Romans one 125 speaks of exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So this is what people do. They take. The, we'll have more to say about this later on. We'll look at this passage next week. We talk about suppression of truth. And, and what happens when you suppress God's truth is you end up accepting something that's fun, fundamentally illogical. And there's nothing more fundamentally illogical than idolatry. You know, to bow down and worship something that you created with your hands—an idol, a picture of a bird, or some other created uh, animal—or even composite human/slash animal—is is absurd. See, and so professing to be wise, you end up, and rejecting God, you end up being foolish. Ephesians 4.25, and again, this is the ethical response from believers, therefore laying aside falsehood. Speak truth, each of you, to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And it's 10 o'clock. So I'm going to end right now. I'll take some questions. If, if uh, What time is the ne- next service starts right now? Or? Oh, we've got a half an hour for questions. <laughs> So uh, any other thoughts? Yeah, Agnes. Yeah, amen. Yeah, and and what was true in Paul's day? I mean, Paul was writing in that Greek environment, was very heavy with Epicurean and Stoic philosophy, um, and many of those ideas were counter to the gospel, counter to the scriptures. So we live in a very similar world today. We don't live in this Christendom anymore. There's still remnants of it. But it's more like a subculture. We have our own little evangelical subculture today. Yeah. But shouldn't we be in it, for example, with boarding? I really like that idea of um, you know, cost conversation and discussion. Um, of course he comes to the wrong end, but there's a grain of truth to what he's saying. What do you think of it? Well, as a principle, I don't have a problem with that. I think there should be free open discussion, but what and again, this is where uh, a book, if I might recommend, that I've only kind of just gotten started on because it's yay thick, D.A. Carson's The Gagging of God. Have you ever read Carson's there? But his basic argument is that the new tolerance has become intolerance. Because you can be whatever you want. You can be a Native American, homosexual, uh, whatever, you know, And that's a voice that needs to be heard. But if you are a believer in one way, and that way is Christ, and one absolute truth and one moral system, you must be shut down. So the new tolerance has actually become a very aggressive intolerance to any voice that claims to have the truth. And again, I'm giving you a preview of next week, but... This is one of the best arguments against that is because what you're doing in saying that you must put down this voice is you're saying our voice is transcendent. Our viewpoint is actually more accurate because our viewpoint is that there is no truth and there is no meta narrative, and so therefore we must put down your truth that you say you believe in because that is a meta narrative. That's a worldview that says that you're right and everybody else is wrong. See? So... Uh, and, and a lot of you are shaking your head because you know that's the world we live in right now. You can say anything you want except that Jesus is the only way to God. And as soon as you say that, you're going to get branded with being hate speech, Right? And I don't think it's far off. I don't think it's far off from when we, if you stand up and say, and just quote, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know, oh, that's hate speech. And then you know the powers that be are going to try to pass laws against that and take us to court, put us in jail, maybe even. You know, uh, there was a case of a Canadian pastor in a sermon, no less, in his church, that spoke out against homosexuality and was imprisoned for it. He was arrested because it, they they considered that hate speech. You know, and remember that was a couple of years ago. I don't know what the resolution of that particular thing was but it's scary in one sense but any other any other questions yes ma'am I think more and more as the world becomes um, more and more hostile towards the society, Christian people need to really allow the Holy Spirit to work because it is by the Spirit that people are reached for God. It's not by our by our human effort. Right and Yeah, I agree to a point with what you're saying. I agree that yes, it's the spirit of God that changes hearts and so forth. But I would if I could draw an analogy, if I was going to be presenting this class to you today, I could say, well, I'm just going to rely upon the spirit and not study, not prepare. Okay, yeah, I know, but that's why good because the Bible says, you know, be ready to make a defense 1 Peter 3, for anyone who asks of you the hope in you. So I wholeheartedly agree that if we rely solely upon our powers of reason and our great arguments and stuff like that, we're not going to get anywhere with anybody. But I think we've got to put the two together. We've got to learn to rely upon the Lord, pray for people, rely upon his power to change hearts. But we also need to do our homework. And we also need to be prepared to give a defense and uh and so forth. So um so I would say both. It's a both and rather than either or to, to do. Yes, sir. along that line I would say that the great Commission doesn't include a pause and says wait until the whole spirit move should do this. That we should be getting in there and the spirit and okay. I'm not gonna argue with you, but I, I see a little differently, but yeah. <laughs> yo, dude, I went to a restaurant not long ago, and I'm I'm old enough to, you know, and, and some, some guy, you know, in his 20s comes up and says, hey, dude, how's it going? Can I take your order? And I'm like, I'm sir to you. <laughs> you know, I'm getting ready to pay you money. I'm not your dude. But anyway, <laughs> but that just sort of dates me. Anyway, uh, it's a good question, and... uh I'm not that conversant with that world to know how they would respond to that. Um, There is something interesting, and I'll just throw this out there. But there's been several books and studies from the medical world. So these are from people who believe in finding empirical evidence for the impact neurologically on our brains and our minds from spirituality. And uh, it's, it's really quite interesting. I have a, a Bible study that I go to, and one of the guys that's a retired doctor turned me on to some of this stuff. And they, So they're, they're doing scientific method. They were looking at some nuns that spent a lot of time praying and meditating and so forth. And they were actually being able to quantify the changes in their brain patterns and, and the good things that were happening to them because of that. So this is sort of an empirical thing. It's not quite what you are asking, I know, but uh, there are some people who are sitting up and taking notice that there really is something going on here. Now again, you know, a postmodern might say, "Well, I don't have any problem with that? Yeah, you know, there are all kinds of paths to spirituality, and spirituality is a good thing." You know, so this is something you'll hear quite often today. You know, spirituality is a good thing as opposed to the old rationalist. Who tended to be against it? You know, all oh, that's just a figment in your brain type thing. Yes, ma'am. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great observation, and perhaps this is one of the areas that you might see a wider door opening up to share Christ with people, because in today's world, it's increasingly popular to talk about being spiritual, right? I can remember a time when it was like, if you're spiritual, you're an idiot, you know? But now, nobody makes fun of somebody who's spiritual, right? Say, oh, yeah, I'm getting in touch with my spiritual side, and... So that can be an opening to at least start a conversation about spirituality and and that sort of thing. What you're going to run into problem with is somebody saying, well, this is what works for me. They're not looking for truth. They're looking for a pragmatic thing that makes them, you know, brings their blood pressure down or helps relax them. You know, oh, I do yoga because it it increases my health and my sense of well-being and, So those are all pragmatic reasons of why we've seen the benefits of spirituality. The challenge for us is to take, (laughs) say, like, yes, that's the way we've been been created by God, but let's look for the truth. You know, let's look for what it was all created for. Yeah, and it was interesting, your comment about uh, Islam. I, I saw the same thing even years ago. My first year at Cairn University, uh, I led a missions trip to Muslim, the Muslim world for six weeks. We spent two weeks in Morocco and different locations where there's high Muslim con. Worked a lot with missionaries and stuff. And I met a guy who had like a Martin Luther experience who had gotten saved... It was an amazing testimony. I still remember it. And, and God was beginning to work, but a lot of the work was like through these supernatural agencies, you know, dreams, visions, uh, stuff like that. And, uh, and then they were finding their ways to the missionaries. So even in a, in a very oppressive culture, right, you, know, you can't hold evangelical services in Morocco or Saudi Arabia or anything like that, but, but God is working, so it's exciting. I think I saw another hand. Yeah. I was just gonna say real quick a friend of mine uh from Moldella had told me once that uh he took a philosophy class and the class started with a professor saying there must be truth. If you say the opposite, there is no truth would be a true statement. And it's as silly as that could sound on its face like that. But you love philosophers, yeah. I love that illustration, but let me give you another version of that. Okay, so here's the philosopher saying there is no truth. How did he get there? Well, he climbed up the ladder. In other words, he had some sort of argument as to why there's no truth. So he used reason. And reason is based upon truth. So he's like a guy who used the ladder climb up in the... T- clum climbed up into the tree via the ladder and then kicked the ladder away. Said there is no truth, there's no rationality. But then how, how should we listen to you? Men, if there's no truth, there's no reality, then, then why should we listen to you? Because you just made rational arguments for why there is no rationality. Great argument against that, yeah. Okay, um, I see that it's time to go. So... Um, <laughs>